if you hadn't opened your Bibles already, turn to, to Psalm 51. And even though Aaron just recently read it, I'm going to, to have this passage as, as part of my sermon today. But I want us to read it, put our eyes on it. I want us to hear it because it's, it's a passage that I think we can never get, get tired of. And, and while you're turning, you know, I, I was thinking through things that, that I needed, to, perhaps needed to be said. And, you know, as I have the opportunity to, to, to fill in this role for our pastor, which I've had several times over the, the past years, you know, this process of, of prayer and, and studying and writing a sermon is not an easy task. And it, it shouldn't be easy by any stretch of the imagination. It should be something that the pastor, the preacher, wrestles with. And it certainly doesn't get any less weighty as I approach it. Uh, And weighty from the aspect that this role, this preacher, we are called to rightly handle the Word of God. Uh, And as I think through that and I kind of pray about what I want to speak on, because, you know, I'm, I'm not up here regularly. I can't take a book of the Bible and exegete through that as our pastor does. Um, so I, I tend to gravitate towards a topic, and it's typically when I look back at the opportunities I've had in the past, it's, it's through it, it gravitates towards something that I am personally wrestling with and wanting to understand and, and wanting to use it to pursue the holiness with which we are called to do, to fight in my battle against sin. And the topic today uh, is going to be one that, that brought me admonishment, Uh, in my life and and brought me encouragement as as I read through the text. But, you know, as I prepare, I think of a a quote that Alistair Begg made a while back when I heard it. It made a lot of sense. He said, every sermon must first be preached to the preacher. And until it has been absorbed there, then it should not be conveyed. Well, folks, I can assure you that for the last few weeks I have wrestled over this text and wrestled over this topic, this need that we have for, for godly repentance. Uh, and I hope that, that it brings uh, encouragement and edification to you this day. But regardless of that, this day, this morning, is the most important time that we have in our week. You know, for believers, Christians, as we eagerly await that time where we will be face-to-face in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be that at our death, or be that that we live to see Christ return for His bride today, as long as it is called today, let us humble ourselves before the Word of God. Let's seek to have it change our lives, not only now, but for eternity. Because it is this Word that has transformed our lives. For believers, it's brought us out of death and into life. This Word gives us hope for this life that we live. And friend, if you're here today and you haven't put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, and and you haven't repented of your sin and unbelief, then this Word is going to bring judgment and condemnation upon you. And I pray, as I have prayed this week, that by this Word you will tremble before it and cry out to God for His mercy. So in honor of the written Word... Let us stand as I read Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, 
blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for us this day is that we recognize our need for your truth. And, Father, that your truth would be revealed to us and make us wise. So, Father, give us understanding where we lack and strength that we need for the courage and the will to obey your word this day. And all of this is to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. If you come into our home, you'll notice on our doorpost that it goes downstairs that there's a series of marks in various heights, in various colors, with various names and dates on them. And what exercises Suzanne and I do is we attempt to have our grandchildren on a regular basis stand up against the door frame and we mark their height and we mark their age and we mark their name. And I'm sure a lot of y'all go through this similar exercise and, you know, the reason that we do it Well, we want to see how much our grandchildren have grown throughout the years. We also use it as a reminder of how little they once were and the joy that they have or the joy that they bring us in our lives. But it also helps us see if perhaps that they're not growing as they should to alert us to something that that may be wrong. So we celebrate our children and our grandchildren's growth. Uh, we, we mark, in this exercise, we mark how they grow physically. I wish there was a way, though, I could mark how we grow spiritually. We should all grow up 
spiritually as Paul writes to the Ephesian church, exhorting them to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Peter says the same thing in his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 2, that we are to be like newborn infants, longing for pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow up into salvation. So today, while these remarks focus on us growing up, I want us to focus, before my comments begin in Scripture, on the idea of us growing down. And, and that idea of growing down, what I mean by that term, is becoming more humble. We grow up in Christ by growing down in humility. You know, the more that we humble ourselves before God, the stronger we become. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. The more we get smaller, the more we grow down, the more mighty we become. Continuing on with Paul's words, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen? Yes. That's exactly what John the Baptist said of Jesus Christ in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Right. Spiritually speaking, if our pride is left unbridled and unchecked, we will inflate ourselves and seek to heap praise upon ourselves instead of God. His grace is sufficient for us. And as a result of humbling ourselves before the Word of God, all that hot, proud air of our soul is released. And then we see ourselves for who and what we really are. We see ourselves less good than we had ever imagined. Or less nice. We see ourselves not as wise as we would consider it. And less strong. We see ourselves less committed to whatever task we have at hand, or, or less steady or less capable to accomplish these things. When we see ourselves as we rightly ought to, we see ourselves much less than we ever thought we were. And it's when that we are low, we stop kidding ourselves to the great importance that we feel like we have in our world or to God. And in our humility, that is the only posture in which we can be trustful and dependent upon God, and obedient and willing to serve Him rightly, which is according to His Word. Looking to operate in God's strength that's in our weaknesses, and that's what I call growing downward. And we always need to remember the example of Christ that Paul lays out for us in the second chapter of Philippians. These are scriptures that we ought to have written on our hearts and know by memory. And he's talking of Christ here, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to God. 
obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I want to take these few moments before I got into my message to remind us of the importance of approaching God's Word in humility, of thinking less of ourselves, because that's exactly the posture we had when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. We didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ proclaiming to ourselves or to the others how wise God must be to have us in His family. We don't put stock in what we do. We don't put stock in how often we attend church. We don't put stock in how much of our time that we share to our church family. We don't put stock into how much money that we give to our church. But rather, we are like the tax collector in Matthew, or excuse me, in Luke 18, who can't even look up to heaven but cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It is this person that Jesus says will go down to his house justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted. Exalted, excuse me. So it is from this posture of humility that I want us to take a look at this doctrine of repentance. I want us to see what it is, what Scripture says about it, what repentance is not, and what real and genuine repentance looks like. In Scripture, whether the word repentance shows up in our English version of, of the Bible, whether it's used as a noun or whether it's used as a verb, it has the same Greek word at its root. And that word is metaneo. M-E-T-A-N-O-E-O. Metaneo. And that word is a compound word. It's comprised of the Greek word meta, which means a change in place or condition. And it, the other word is noeo, which means an exercise of the mind. What is an exercise of the mind? I had to wonder. It is in thinking. We use our mind to think. We use our mind to understand. We use our mind to comprehend. So this Greek word metaneo literally means to change one's mind, to change what we think, to change in what we understand. Now, to flesh out this word to a little greater depth and with biblical understanding, let's look at Scripture. And as I reference these texts that we will look at, or that I will read, I want to establish a couple of points. First, through these passages, I want us to see why the changing of our mind is an essential part in the salvific work of God through Christ in our lives. Then secondly, I want us to understand how repentance aids us in our growth in Christ-likeness. So I want us to look this morning at the whys and the hows of this doctrine of repentance. The first scripture that I find is in the ministry of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, Matthew tells us, John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A chapter later, over in Matthew chapter 4, as well paralleled in Mark chapter 1, Jesus begins his ministry after returning from his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, and he begins to preach, saying, just as John did, repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ's first sermon, repent and believe. Into the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 13, 
He tells us the story of Jesus who was teaching his disciples regarding judgment. While he was teaching, he was interrupted by someone who asked him an ethical question regarding a catastrophe that happened in Jerusalem. We're not given any information of when this event occurred. We do know it included Roman soldiers on orders from Pontius Pilate who slaughtered Galileans who were apparently involved in some sort of rebellious act. Luke tells us that this massacre took place on the temple grounds because their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. Regardless of why or when this tragedy occurred, Christ's message is this. Repent, or excuse me, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And just so that his hearers didn't miss the point, immediately Jesus brings up another tragic event that had occurred in Jerusalem. The Tower of Siloman fell and killed 18 people. And Jesus delivers the same message. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Two times in the span of just a few verses, the same message the Lord wants to get across to his hearers. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There is no salvation apart from repentance. Going on in Luke, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is teaching a parable, the parable of the lost coin. And he sums up this parable with the truth that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus appears to his disciples in Luke 24, saying this, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The words of the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, during his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 3, after healing the lame beggar at the temple gate, the crowds rush to Peter, and he proclaims the same message, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. It's the same Holy Spirit leading the same man, the Apostle Peter, to proclaim the same gospel, that same call to repentance in the early church. We see the same message in Paul's messages, or the same thought in Paul's messages in Acts, when he is preaching in Athens in Acts 17. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And again, in Acts 20, when Paul is with the Ephesian elders, he reminds them that he taught publicly and from house to house with a message both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So with John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, the gospel message is repentance toward God unto salvation. Now, time doesn't permit me to touch on every scripture where the occurrence of repentance is found. 
suffice it to say, with just these examples, we do see that repentance is a foundational matter. It is an indispensable part of our salvation and of our lives as children of God. But from a biblical perspective now, we can see these verses and, and see that the Greek word means more than just changing one changing one's mind. It's a change of mind that results in a change of action. So in other words, in its simplest form, it's a call for us to turn from sin, to have that radical transformation occur in our lives as we unmistakably seek to turn from evil and have a resolute and determined turning towards God. It's that commitment to move from unrighteousness to righteousness, from disobedience to obedience. And the entire ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and subsequently the ministry of the apostles, there is that proclamation of a complete, unconditional, and ongoing turning from sin to God, to all that is against God, to all that honors Him. It's not just a turning from wickedness, but it's also a turning from those things that would not be God-honoring. It's total. Total in its surrender, total in its commitment to the will of God and the Word of God. And it embraces our whole lives. It's not just that we change our mind about who Jesus is. It's not that we change our mind about what our circumstances are and decide then to do something different. It's a whole new life that emerges out of humility and self-denial. You know, God is not commanding us to clean up our lives, but to lay our lives down. Self-denial. It's to deny yourself and engage in the battle of sin in our lives and commit ourselves unreservedly to Christ. It's important because as our Lord and Savior said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So we see in these verses there is that connection between repentance and salvation. But what does that connection demand of us? When I read these passages, whether it's a message of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or Jesus, repent and believe in the gospel, repent or perish, or Peter, repent and be baptized, repent and turn back, or Paul, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, or repent and turn toward God, the message is the same. Repentance involves recognizing that what we have thought wrongly in the past. The repentant person, we should have second thoughts. We should look at the mindset that we embraced and the desires that we pursued and the actions that we undertook and have a complete change of direction in how we think and what we feel and how we act towards God, how we view our sin, how serious we get about pursuing holiness and doing God's will. Paul says this repentance that we should have is accompanied with godly grief. And that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. One of the clearest pictures in Scripture of the invitation to salvation and the necessity for repentance is found in what Jake read when he was up here during the time of praise in Isaiah 55. Here we have a call to salvation that incorporates repentance without the 
prophet ever using those words. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Seeking the Lord, yes, it is important. Calling upon him is critical. But so is forsaking wicked ways and unrighteous thoughts. It is impossible to seek the Lord without turning from sin. It is impossible to turn to the Lord without turning away from our iniquity and our wickedness. These two doctrines of repentance and salvation are inextricably connected. And to help us understand that statement, I want to share with you probably one of the best analogies in my studies that I came across. It said repentance and faith can be understood as two sides of the same coin. It's impossible to place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior without first changing our mind about our sin and about who Jesus is and what He has done for us. What He has done for us, not only in His sacrificial, obedient life, but also what He has done for us by His obedience that carried Him to His death on the cross. So whether our repentance is from a rejection that we had towards God and His grace all these years, or it's a repentance of our ignorance and disinterest in Him, it does involve a change of mind. Biblical repentance in relation to salvation is changing our minds from faith, from rejection of Christ to faith in Christ. But we do need to remember that while these two commands to repent and believe are closely related in Scripture, we need to know this. Repentance is not a work that we do to earn salvation. No one can repent and come to God unless God pulls that person to himself. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Repentance is a, God, is a gift of God that he gives to us, and it is only possible because of his grace to us. No one can repent unless God grants him repentance. And we see those examples in Peter's preaching in Acts 5 and Acts 11 where Peter says that God has exalted Christ to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel for the forgiveness of sins. And again, in Acts 11, where Peter's sharing with the early church of his testimony, where he witnessed the Gentiles coming to faith, he says to them that God has granted repentance that leads to life. The entirety of salvation... Repentance and faith is a result of God drawing us, opening our eyes, and changing our hearts. Peter says that his long-suffering, his patience toward us, leads to repentance, wishing that not anyone should perish, but all should reach repentance. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.9. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, remind us of God's kindness towards repentance, is, is to lead us to repentance. So, friend, if you're sitting here today thinking that your sinfulness and your rebellion against God has put you past the point of salvation and repentance, be assured and be encouraged by this, that though your sins are many and will have consequences in your life, they are utterly incapable of putting you beyond the reach of God's grace. So I implore you this day that do not quench the Holy Spirit 
this day and what the work God is doing in your heart. Or you may be found like Esau, who sought repentance with tears, but he could not find it. I urge you this day, as long as it is called today, that you cry out to God. While repentance is not a work that earns salvation, repentance unto salvation does produce fruit in our lives, godly fruit. We can't change our mind without having a resultant change in our actions in some fashion. Because according to Scripture, repentance results in a change of behavior. That's why John the Baptist in his preaching proclaimed people to produce fruits in keeping with repentance. So we have to look inwardly and ask ourselves, does the manner in which we live give evidence of our salvation? Because a person who is truly repentant and has exercised faith in Christ will give proof of a changed life. Once again, I go back to Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So in summary, we see that repentance is linked with salvation. It is an element of saving faith, but it's not something that we do to earn salvation, but rather repentance is a means to produce godly fruit in our lives. And all these truths point to the fact that repentance is a change in the direction of our will, our personalities, What comprises our will? What comprises our personalities? Well, repentance must include a change in our mind and how we understand. Repentance also includes our emotions or how we feel with regards to our lives. And finally, repentance includes our actions or what we do, our volition. First, repentance involves our intellect. You know, we have to rightly define sin if you're going to turn from it. So repentance must begin with the right recognition of sin as an affront to a holy God. You know, as believers, as we're called to be ambassadors of Christ and to share the gospel, to proclaim it, we call people to repentance. But that proclamation must also include an understanding of the seriousness of sin. Sin is not just a human weakness. Sin is not just an attitude of disobedience. Sin is a violation It is a defilement of the law of the most holy God, and it is an affront to Him. And while sin will produce personal guilt, it will be guilt that can never be removed throughout all eternity because the offense is against the most holy God, and that will require everlasting punishment to those whose sin is not covered by the blood of Christ. And it is at this point that you have to understand why Christ came In human form, He came to be that perfect sacrifice. The love of God that He placed upon us before eternity passed was of such depth that He provided for us His Son to bear the punishment for our sins. For those who would believe that Christ lived and died and rose again, our punishment was placed on His shoulders so that God would be just in His justice and He would be the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. So repentance is a change in our understanding. It does include our intellect. And as R.C. Sproul said one time, we're not called to give up our intellect when we're called to be a Christian. We're called to give up our pride in order to trust. We must understand the gravity of our sin 
and the provision that comes to us from Christ. It also involves our emotion because true repentance does produce sorrow. As we read in 2 Corinthians, it's a godly sorrow or sorrow unto repentance that's true and deep and produces a salvation that's genuine. As Paul says, it's a repentance without regret. You know, consider the next verse, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. For what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, and also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Repentance has an earnestness to it, a godly sorrow that desires to make things right, even at the cost of your own reputation. You know, true believers in Corinth, they regarded their reputation as nothing compared to the unsurpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. In their repentance that Paul describes, they long to see themselves, as John the Baptist said, decrease so that Christ may increase. Repentance is an emotional occurrence. We should feel the godly grief. We should be heartbroken as a result of it. And finally, repentance includes volition. It includes our actions and a resulting change in those. A willingness, a determination as best we can to abandon sin and fight the stubborn disobedience that resides in our heart. To to surrender ourselves to the will of Christ in whatever He asks. A.W. Tozer wrote this, that the gospel message does not clean us up and shine us up on the outside, but rather it bores into the very heart and soul of a person and radically changing them from the inside forever. So with our personality being totally affected, how we think, how we feel, and how we act as it pertains to our understanding of our sinfulness against God, we can, repro- we can approach repentance rightly. Because we still live in this body of flesh. We still have a sinful nature. We have to continually battle for a heart and a mind of repentance. Because we can easily deceive ourselves into feeling sorry for our sin. We can deceive ourselves into a false repentance that is not produced by godly grief. But rather it appeases the guilt that we have in our hearts and that continual love that we have for sin. You know, to those who truly repent, God's forgiveness is sufficient. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So in that repentance, as we are called to rend or to tear our hearts and return to walk in that narrow path of righteousness, sadly, for many of those who profess themselves to be Christian, repentance is nothing more than hollow platitudes, or a way to say, I'm sorry, without ever giving up the practice of sin. You know, Matthew tells us in Matthew 18 that God is willing to forgive as many times as one repents, but he certainly will not be fooled into washing white as snow any sin that remains cherished in our hearts and that is worn like a badge of honor. The reason I would submit to you that why holiness and and closeness and relationship with God remains beyond the reach of many in the church is because we have believed and practiced many worldly ways regarding repentance. I call them false ways of repentance. Let me share with you just four different ways that, that I feel like 
are signs of a false repentance. We change our actions without genuinely repenting in our heart. This usually comes in the method of reform. We seek to reform ourselves, but the deception remains. No matter how good we think ourselves to be, the love of sin still resides in our heart, and any act of repentance is nothing more than provides a false sense of security. Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 17, 9 says this about the heart, that it is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. David adds the same thought in his opening verse in Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Psalm 36, 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. You know, whatever comes from a wicked source will be wicked. It's never good. And when our actions spring from a wicked heart, they are only at best self-serving and hypocritical. You know, the individual who seeks to change their actions without generally repenting has no true intent to change their desire towards sin. They have no true intent to change their understanding of the sacrifice of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And I would submit to you, when they have no desire to change their actions, they have stripped the value and the worth of Jesus Christ as their Savior completely. Changing your will without changing your affections will certainly keep you on the road to destruction. Another sign of false repentance is that we may experience sadness or remorse, godly grief. We may have a sincere emotional response, but if it's absent affection for Christ and disaffection for sin, then that emotion has very weak legs and it will not carry you through that long walk of obedience. The perfect example in Scripture is the rich young man found in Mark chapter 10. Perfect example of being sorrowful but not forgiven. You know, one day, as the story goes, a man comes up to Jesus and he falls on his knees. He comes to him in worship and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What was Jesus' response? Follow my commands. And the man replies, all these I have kept from my youth. So I sit there and I, I think through this this happening, this event. Here's this man who comes wanting eternal life. He, he, he knows he's followed the commands. His response is immediate and emphatic. I've done all those things. But I would submit to you, deep in his heart, he knew that something was keeping him out of right fellowship with God, keeping him out of entering the kingdom. And Jesus goes on to tell him, go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Jesus says this because he knows that man's sin was the pride he had in his possessions and the love of money. And at the end of the story, we're told the man left disheartened and with great sorrow and distress because he would not give up his money. You know, sorrow, yes, is an important first step in repentance, but it's not enough to receive forgiveness. Judas was sorry for betraying the Lord, for betraying Christ. But he went out and hung himself and went straight to hell. Like the rich young man, our repentance must go beyond being sorry for having sinned. We can be sad all we want, but until we love God more than we love our sin, we will never ask for nor have that sin forgiven. Another manner of 
false repentance is we attempt to relieve ourselves guilt by earning God's favor. You know, we want that right relationship with God. We, we know that it's broken. We know that it's right. So we decide and we try to make things right. Instead of repenting of our sin, we make the determination that we will be in church every Sunday. Instead of repenting from our sins, we'll say, we'll make the commitment, the promise to God that we will pray more often. Or I will get back on my Bible reading plan and more consistently. Now, yes, while these means are grace of of fellowship with the body, of gathering together, of prayer, of scripture intake, these are all means of grace that we avail ourselves to. They are not activities that we purchase God's forgiveness. When we sin against a holy God who is pure light, scripture says the only sacrifice that will please God's righteousness is death. Paul writes, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So if we seek to offer righteous deeds of service that the prophet Isaiah calls polluted garments, or a more literal translation, a menstrual cloth, if we seek to offer that kind of self-perceived righteousness as a payment for our sins, that is an offensive response to God. He demands so much more than we can ever pay. And how much more offense must it be then to Christ who has once and for all paid the debt for our sins? Any acts of penance that we can do cannot buy forgiveness. To be forgiven, we must have faith that the blood of Christ was sufficient to pardon me and to cleanse me of my sin. If I offer anything to God, it must be with a broken and contrite heart that truly believes that Christ's sacrifice is the only means of being forgiven. Another method or another attempt at false repentance is that we will repent of some sins while we cherish others. You know, James tells us in his epistle in James chapter 1 that the root of sin is the evil desires within our hearts. You know, we selectively repent of those sins that are less enticing to us while we hang on to those that bring us more pleasure or happiness. Or we repent of those glaring sins that others may see, but in turn we'll hide and hold on to those sins that we cherish secretly within our hearts. You know, repentance can't be done in this manner. All sin is offensive to God, and all sin costs the same. And that cost was the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will not accept us cherishing any kind of sin. Even as much as society approving of wandering on that dark path, the truly repentant person finds all sin, all sins abhorrent, and views it as an offense that must be turned from as quickly as God's grace makes it possible. So whether that false repentance is one that has no heart about it, or no godly grief, or we attempt to earn God's favor, or we still seek to cherish sins in our hearts. It's not the repentance that leads to salvation. So let's circle back to Psalm 51 and look at it briefly at some of the characteristics of David's genuine repentance. David has written this psalm after he had been confronted by the prophet Nathan. 
Nathan confronted him about his adultery that he had committed with Bathsheba. He confronted him about the subsequent murder that he had ordered against her husband, Uriah. And he had confronted him about the attempt to hide the unplanned pregnancy. Some pretty significant events in King David's life. And this text is remarkable for its beauty and its depth. And in it, we see the broken soul of David as he emerges from the dark depths of separation, of fellowship that he has with the Lord, of hiding his sin. Now he climbs the steps of forgiveness to once again bathe in the light and the love of God. In the first five verses, we see David's cry for mercy and an owning of his own sin. He freely acknowledges his sin before God and appeals to God for forgiveness. There in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. This plea is based entirely upon God's mercy, which David understands that he does not deserve. Equally important, he takes ownership of his sin and lays no blame of it at the feet of God. And he, I, I read in this text the understanding that David knows that God would be completely justified in refusing mercy to him and to bring justice upon him. But David uses about every Hebrew word to confess sin. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. The Hebrew word for transgression is to rebel against authority. David admits that, that he has rebelled against God and his authority and that he has crossed many lines in these events that transpired to get him to this point. And he has done some very wicked things. The next word he uses is iniquity, which points to the guilt of his actions and the word sin which literally means evil. David uses some very meaningful words here. Rebellion, guilt, evil. Never does he say what he did was a mistake. Blot out my mistakes with your abundant mercy. Wash me thoroughly from my bad decisions and cleanse me from my wrongful attitude. (laughs) We don't see that. We see some very weighty words and he because he recognizes his sin is treason against God in verses 6 through 13 we see David plea for restored and renewed fellowship with God he begins to turn inward on himself there in verse 6 as he speaks of his inward being and his secret heart and down in verse 10 his his heart and his his spirit within him. And David is not confessing in self-abasement, but he is focusing on the source of where his obedience should come from. You delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. There in verse 6. And in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit, within me. David's desire is he wants a fresh sense of God's presence in his life. And he desires deeply the call to obedience. 
And through this experience, David desires to be a faithful witness to the unfaithful. There in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and and sinners will return to you. Christian, is that what we seek in repentance? Do we seek that renewal of fellowship that we have with God? Do we seek to confess our sins before Him and turn from them? And then David, his repentance, as our genuine repentance also, should always lead to worship. In verses 14 through 17, Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. And you will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is the perfect example here in this psalm of what Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 12, we are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. That living sacrifice, that broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart is the place of humility that we must have as we approach our repentance. This psalm, of all the penitent psalms in Scripture, this psalm really, I think, is the clearest picture. There is no lack of godly grief in David's response. David mourns his lost relationship with God and his offense against God and rebellion against him and his authority and his rules is clearly understood by David. And he pleads to God for mercy to forgive him and to restore their fellowship. Clear picture of repentance. David knows the promises of Scripture, that, that God is genuine or generous beyond measure. And so David, knowing that, he's genuine in turning from his sins and obedience, turning back to Christ, knowing that with God's faithfulness to forgive him, he will receive repentance. That is our God. That is our Savior. And that repentance always leads to worship. Christian, is that what you're seeking in your battle against sin? Are you seeking a closer and a deeper fellowship with God through Christ? That only comes with continual confession and repentance of our sin. Seeking to turn away for acknowledging God for who He is and sin for what it is. May we have that same heart, that heart of David. And friend, today, as I've said a couple times, don't quench today what the Spirit is doing in your life. What you are feeling right now. You may not have another day. This may be the last day of your life. So I call you to repentance. I call you to faith and trust in Christ as the only Savior for our sins, who left His Father's side and took on our flesh, who was tempted to disobedience just like we are, but yet without sin. The one who did not deserve to die went willingly and joyfully to the cross, 
not concerned so much about the physical pain, but in torment about the spiritual separation he would have because of my sin. The weight that he bared, that he took from me, has granted me eternal life. And I pray that for you. I want that for you. I desire that for you. So my application today, one word, repent. Okay, maybe three words. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And in closing, I want to share with you uh, from a devotional that I know a lot of us have here, the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. And the Puritans had a much better way with prose than I ever could. And this, this, this prayer, the, the individual seeks to help himself understand that he's not as good as he thinks he is. That there's so much lacking. Even though he's desirous in his pursuit of fellowship with the Father, there's so much lacking. And, and as I read this prayer, I just want you to consider, is this a picture of you? It's entitled, Old Changeless God. Under the conviction of thy spirit, I learn that the more that I do, the worse I am. The more I know, the less I know. The more holiness I have, the more sinful I am. The more I love, the more there is to love. O wretched man that I am. O Lord, I have a wild heart and cannot stand before thee. I am like a bird before a man. How little I love thy truth and ways. I neglect prayer by thinking I have prayed enough and earnestly, by knowing that thou hast saved my soul. Of all hypocrites, grant that I may not be an evangelical hypocrite, who sins more safely because grace abounds, who tells his lust that God's, or excuse me, that Christ's blood cleanses them, who reasons that God cannot cast him to hell, for he is saved, who loves evangelical preaching, churches, Christians, but lives unholily. My mind is a bucket without a bottom, with no spiritual understanding, no desire for the Lord's day, ever learning but never reaching the truth, always at the gospel well, but never holding water. My conscience is without conviction or contrition, with nothing to repent of. My will is without power of decision or resolution. My heart is without affection, full of leaks. My memory has no retention, so I easily forget the lessons learned, and thy truths seep away. Give me a broken heart that yet carries the home the water of grace. Let's pray. Father God, You have been faithful to us this day by granting to us Your Word, by granting to us an understanding to see the importance of the call to repentance from sin as a call unto salvation, but also as a call to Christ-likeness, to pursue holiness. Father, in this battle is difficult, yet you provide for us. 
Your grace is sufficient for us. So that in our weaknesses we might not be defeated or feel impotent. But Father, we boast in our weaknesses because Your power rests upon us. So Father, I pray that this day that that in our mind we hold these words, we reflect on these words, we wrestle with these words, we are obedient to these words. And Father, may the fame of Your name go forth from our lives as a testimony that our hope is not in this world of which we are strangers and aliens, but our hope is in our heavenly home, and in that we rejoice. Father, I thank You for the love in which You have loved us that You gave us Christ, and for His obedience to You completely, fully, and without reservation, so that we may have eternal life. Thank You, Father, for this day, for this morning. I pray these things in Christ's name.